0: A podcast one production. G'day, this is Mark Pesci and welcome to Cryptonomics. This is our 11th episode, a special episode beyond Series 1. Over Series 1, we did our best to explore and explain the way cryptocurrencies and the technology underneath them, the blockchain, will transform our entire world. And along the way, we learned what makes it all tick, how people are using this technology to do amazing things, what it means for the future of money, finance, investing, and the economy. Now, when you look beyond the ripples produced by the fall and fall and fall and fall in the price of Bitcoin, you can see another wave, a tsunami of change that will roll over banks and stock markets, even nations. Over the next billion seconds, the entire world of economics, everything that's been touched by money, will be changed. That's why we called this series Cryptonomics. Now, in this episode, we're joined by two previous guests on Cryptonomics discussing the recent past and possible futures for all things cryptonomic, polishing our crystal balls for a look forward into 2019 on this episode of Cryptonomics. It's a great pleasure to welcome Mark Jeffrey back to Cryptonomics. Mark is the patron saint of this podcast because our episode on cryptocurrencies on the next billion seconds remains the most downloaded episode of this series. And that episode inspired this special series. Joining Mark Jeffrey is another frequent guest, Robert Tursik, the award-winning author of Vaporized, a book that explains why and how all that is solid in the world is melting into software, and of course that includes money. Welcome back, Mark and Rob.
1: Welcome Mark, back. good to be here.
0: <laughs> okay. Topic one on our news story, and I alluded to this in our intro. So on the 8th of January 2018, the price of Bitcoin peaked at around 17,000 US dollars. Here we are exactly a year later And right now, the price of Bitcoin is somewhere between sort of $3,500 and $4,000, depending on exactly when you look at the price. Ethereum over the same period of time has dropped from $1,250 a coin to about $100 a coin. And this show is never focused on the price or value of Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency. But neither can we ignore this price drop. We get to wonder what that means. Now, Mark, you were quoted on this show as saying that you believe that Bitcoin will go up to a quarter million dollars a piece. So, what do you reckon has been going on here?
1: I think this is very much like the dot-com boom and bust cycle that we saw in the you know late '90s, early 2000s, and uh, we've just gone through the analog of that cycle in the crypto universe um, in a compressed time frame. So, in the dot-com boom and bust, or uh, cycle, it was about four and a half years, maybe five years. Uh, in the crypto world, it was about a year and a half. So it's a lot faster. So I think people got very over exuberant and, and probably extended themselves a little bit too far. And then they got scared. And don't forget also that the main markets have also experienced a lot of crashing and volatility. So it's not isolated to just crypto. So I think that is affecting the crypto universe to a certain degree. And I think that we're, you know, we're in a little dead period right now. Everyone, everyone knows. Um, But I don't, this is not the end of the story. This is the middle part of, this is the second act. The third act is Return of the Jedi and we're not there yet. And that is coming. And when, if it's anything like the dot-com boom and bust, um, you know, we saw a little hump and then a dead period and then the actual value uh, ascension really happened um, with Amazon and Google and Facebook and LinkedIn, kind of 2004 and on. And I think we're going to see the same thing here. So,
0: If you make that analogy, though, none of the companies you just mentioned were really part of the original dot-com bubble. So all of those went away, and a new set of companies that were founded on more, I guess, sound business principles took over and started their rise into value.
2: That's not entirely true. That's not entirely true. Amazon was public before the dot-com crash, and, and owners of that stock experienced a tremendous loss of value. And that stock bounced around in the wilderness for a long time, like for beyond the crash, 2004, even it was kind of crawling its way back in 2006. But if you held on to Amazon, then you experienced a 20-fold increase in the value of the price. So those who held on for a long time gained, and I think that's what Mark's trying to articulate. Yeah,
0: You're really sort of talking about the this is the huddle, the hold on for dear life sort of premise around.
2: Yeah, but if you own shares in the Globe or some bull <laughs> stock from 1997... <laughs> Then you lost everything you had. So there's also plenty of examples of that in the crypto world as well.
0: Yeah. One of the things that we've seen as a side effect to this is that we saw a very active market in initial coin offerings in 2017 and 2018. Mark your own Guardian coin was part of this and they all did very well and we're seeing fewer and fewer and we're also seeing more of them come out and not raise the funds that they'd intended to raise. Is there a sense that this is a temporary spill or is this a sense that maybe this is a new reality for ICOs? And, and and that then means that all of the businesses that are trying to use tokenomics, as we talked about in episode four, and we had you on in episode four to talk yeah. about this, that somehow we need to rethink what tokenomics are and how tokenomics work around the fact that it's harder to fund companies using tokens.
1: I think there's kind of two things going on. The first one is, is that in the United States in particular, in particular, uh, the regulatory environment is still very uncertain and there's a lot of fear. That has been, in a lot of ways, the primary slowdown of ICOs uh, worldwide because everyone looks at the states uh, for leadership. That said, I'm aware of uh, you know two ICOs that happened within the past month that were very successful. Uh, they happened in the Neo ecosystem. One, one was called Spotcoin. Um, what uh,
0: made them different? What made them successful? They and different? were
1: off. They were not in the United States. So oh, okay. they, uh, one of them originated out of Tbilisi, Georgia, uh, and the other one out of Amsterdam. So they were completely outside of the United States regulatory environment. That's why they were successful, uh, in part. So I I think that, you know, we are in a little dead period right now, but I don't think it's going to last forever. Uh, On top of that, we're seeing a lot of life now um, out of the United States Congress in terms of attacking this regulatory issue. Just yesterday, a new bill was introduced uh, that attempts to exempt cryptocurrencies uh, from SEC control. So we don't know whether it's going to be passed or not, but this is a very serious I bill. I can't
0: see the SEC going along with that because they, they do see these things as security. So, I mean, I can see this as being a very active area for, for political discussion, but do you really think that the SEC is going to say, yes, let's just let them go? And
1: well, the SEC has manage. no say, right? Congress makes the laws. The SEC enforces the laws. So if Congress makes a law that says this is not SEC um, territory, then it's done.
2: And it's not that long ago that the head of the commodity trading uh, group, the commission... was asserting that they had statutory authority over this. So the, the question goes back to Congress. Let's see what happens. And a
1: court backed the commodities folks as well. So there's no precedent
2: there.
0: So is there then maybe a question that if the U.S. cannot sort out its regulatory position, that the ICO market becomes a more international market rather than something that's located in or primarily focused around yes. the United States? Yes, you've,
1: you, you've, you've, you've nailed it exactly. Um, and in fact, that is, that is the great danger right now. And I think a lot of people in the United States recognize this. Um, is that um, the rest of the world is moving faster on cryptocurrency and blockchain-based opportunities than the United States because of the regulatory uncertainty in the environment? There's a very real risk that the next generation of Amazon's, Google's, Facebook's will happen everywhere but the United States, and uh, that's where we're on track. We're on track for that right now, and I'm, I'm really hoping that we change course. There's an analogy in the
2: in the pharmaceutical industry and the medical research industry. Um, you know, our FDA the cost of complying with FDA drug testing is extraordinary. So you can develop a new drug, and actually, many companies have. And then they find that they can't afford the billions of dollars in 10 years of testing uh, to comply with FDA regulations. So in the last 10 years, you've started to see a, a new kind of shadow industry emerge where you move to a market with less regulation, where you can actually test the drug in the real world and, um, and maybe get to market without the encumbrance of this massive uh, testing regimen. So I think what, what Mark Jeffrey is referring to is, is an analogy. Maybe it's not a perfect analogy, but you can sort of see the idea. Now we live in a world where, Entrepreneurs can migrate to different territories where regulations are not going to stifle innovation. So, if we're seeing the world through, I guess, that international lens,
0: and you're someone who's thinking of doing an ICO or you're looking at investing in ICOs, then what countries have the best, I guess, regulatory domains that at least allow you to be able to operate? but also perhaps provide the best level of uh, protection for an investor, because you probably need to balance both of those, right? You don't just want to have a free-for-all, because that's then going to end up with lots of bad products and people losing money
1: because of that. Well, Zug, Switzerland is definitely one place. Uh, Gibraltar
0: is another. And of course, Gibraltar, again, because of the tax, or I should say the gambling laws that are around Gibraltar, we know CryptoFlip is in fact in Gibraltar, because it gives them access to the EU around gambling, and they have their own cryptocurrency so we've already seen some of that
1: yeah but the government of Gibraltar has made it very clear that they want to be a player in the crypto space mm-hmm. they, look, yeah, they look at this as a giant opportunity Malta is actually the one that's probably the hottest one right now yeah.
2: but so. it, but you know here's the thing you have to consider if you're a crypto billionaire Do you want to do business in a place where a couple big guys in uh, shabby suits are going to grab you and shove you in the back of a trunk of a car? That's a possibility. For every entrepreneur that's out there listening to this, it's actually a good idea to talk to somebody familiar with SEC regulation. That would typically be a legal advisor. Um, Every law firm I've spoken to in the United States says what we're going to seek to do with security token offerings in particular in 2019 is comply with SEC regulations. So a
0: security token offering, rather than just a standard token offering, means this is a security that represents an actual investment share in a company. That's right. And so therefore really you're, does fall under the SEC. tokenizing
2: ownership in the organization. Yeah, yeah. That's
0: right. As opposed to tokenizing say a store of value that might be used, uh, for example, with uh, Power Ledger, where they're doing it for energy transfers and things like that.
2: There's still people who argue, for, make the case for utility tokens, and in my narrow perspective what I've seen in the second half of 2018 is people are migrating, American startup companies, US-based startup companies, are migrating away from the argument for utility tokens, and they're moving in the direction of either uh, security tokens or tokenized assets. And there's a distinction between the two things. The security tokens represent share of ownership in a company, tokenized assets means that you're now using a token to represent it's like a digital representation that you can trade uh that's a that's a stake in a real world uh a real world item that has for example value. property and
0: i've seen any yeah. number of pitches around you know being able to have a tokenized share of a house or something yeah, like that that's right and the devil always tends to be in the details around the contracts around that because if you have a thousand people owning a house that can be very difficult to put on a deed
2: yeah and, and you know then when Points to some kind of mythological smart contract as the solution for that. Lots of hand waving ensues.
1: Yeah, so I'm actually going to uh, take the contrary position to Mr. Tursek. So uh, I'm actually a very big believer still in the utility token, and I think we're. And you're right. The trend right now is a move towards security tokens. However, I think much like the dot-com boom and bust, uh, after, after everything crashed in the dot-com world, everyone said, oh, B2C is, is nothing, and we should all be chasing B2B, and it became all about vertical.net. That is, in, that is the analog of security tokens. Everyone now is like, oh, well, utility tokens are nothing. We should all be doing security tokens. But the reality is, is right now there are no security token exchanges all this, all the coins that you see on Coin Market Cap, they're all utility tokens, or, or you know, they're not securities. So, so they're going to
0: have to build a whole infrastructure it around doesn't security exist token it's, trading it's as well. It's mythological
1: at this point. Right, it's not real yet. So I think, I think just like the dot-com boom and bust, the real answer here is stay the course on the equivalent of B2C or utility tokens. And eventually, because the right answer in the dot-com crash was to keep building Amazon, to keep building Google, keep building Facebook, right? It wasn't to go do vertical.net.
0: Funny you should mention Facebook because this brings us to our next topic. So according to Bloomberg, Facebook is now developing a cryptocurrency that's going to be used in WhatsApp so that people can do value exchanges, money exchanges. Yes. In Side of WhatsApp, and WhatsApp is used in India. They can see the, I guess, $90 billion remittance market in India, which is just enormous, and they can see WhatsApp is being used as the engine, and clearly Facebook wants to have a piece of this. So, Facebook is one of the big, it's one of the fang companies, right? It's one of the biggest companies on the internet. You can argue about whether Facebook is a good thing or a bad thing. And certainly on this podcast, I've laid out some arguments for why we need to regard Facebook with a degree of fear and loathing. But at the same time, when they put it in WhatsApp, it then becomes a cryptocurrency that's available to a billion people. It's supposedly a stable coin. We did an entire episode on a stable coin so that when you use this cryptocurrency, you can be guaranteed that the person who's redeeming it gets as much value as you provide to them because of the stable coin. Do we think that this is more than a thought bubble on Facebook's part, or is this? do you think this is part
2: of their master plan? Facebook has no choice. Usage is down. Visits are down. Engagement is down. Revenue is down. They've, they've admitted this publicly. They have a growth problem. They've hit the growth wall, and largely it's self-imposed. So they have no choice. They have to seek out other forms of revenue. They have this enormous install base of people using WhatsApp, which they haven't actually been very successful in monetizing. So this is an area for them to start to look at other opportunities. By the way, they're not the first to look at building in some kind of currency exchange. into Telegraph,
0: right, is the first example of that Just about
2: every messaging app. So they're a little late to the party. WeChat, obviously, is a gigantic transaction platform. But even a smaller messaging app that Americans aren't familiar with, something like Kakaotalk in Korea... Um, got into remittances two years ago. Uh, So back in 2016, they bought a company in the Philippines because there's some 60,000 people, Filipino people working in in Korea that want to send remittances back. The global remittances business is about a $500 billion business, so it's a nice, big, juicy business. It's dominated by companies like Western Union. So if you're sending remittances back, uh, let's say the average worker sends about $200 or $300 a month back to their home country, um, you're going to pay a fee somewhere around $12 on that. Um, if you can cut that in half, obviously people are going to move there, but there's a lot of trust issues. Which app should I trust? Do I trust these people? Do I trust this particular coin? And so what strikes me as paradoxical here is the company that's done more to destroy trust on the internet is now seeking to offer a new kind of currency, and they're basically basically they're going to hang this whole thing on trust us. I'm a skeptic.
1: So the store of value and transfer of value marketplace, mm. if you will, mm. Um, actually, when you think about it, it is the most killingest of all killer apps of all time. So, store, well, it's the original one, it's right? It's the original moving, app. Right? Moving money around is so the original app, yeah. The amount of money that's in the world is $80 trillion. So, that's, that's the addressable market of the store and transfer of value app. Facebook has recognized this. Stable coins are the first step that's the gateway drug into that universe. But it's not; it's not the end. But it is a gr- it is a great place to start, and and clearly, I, I agree with Rob. The Facebook is late to the party. Mm-hmm. However, this is a very very real market, and
0: once you know, but Apple's often late to the party, and that doesn't necessarily mean they lose the right, market. Exactly.
1: So, I, I think Facebook has a good chance of, of making this work, to be honest. And I don't think that this the stablecoin is is the end of it. I think there are lots of once you have a stablecoin, that's easily tradable for other tokens that do other things. And to tie this back in, the first. Bitcoin
0: application that I saw that maybe go this is good was a company called Abra, yeah. right? Mm, yes, and which won the launch festival a few years ago, and I was actually one of the judges, and I was in the room, and I was I was part of the team that said this is an amazing thing, let's do it, and they've they've they've, they've built a small market out of this, but they were they they did remittances, they were going to focus on the Philippines, so they've they've everything you've talked about, they've actually done, and they used Bitcoin for this, and so. There's clearly a case to be made here for this, and then when you have a giant company, and of course the thing that we tend to overlook about Facebook is that although Facebook may be losing its luster in America and in Europe, in Asia, specifically Indonesia, the Philippines, Malaysia, it is the primary form of internet access for those populations, right? And Their captive audiences, and so in some ways, Facebook is looking to those markets, which are remittance-driven markets. I think for this product, so maybe this is exactly the right way they need to go because they see themselves more as an Asian company in the future, and less as an American
2: company. So, wouldn't that be a colossal irony, since uh, here we are in the you know kind of the 10th anniversary of cryptocurrency? Currency being introduced and the whole principle was decentralization so now this colossal centralized giant this company that's seeking to dominate every aspect of our lives and monetize our data and sell it off is now going to try to also centralize digital currency and go the exact opposite direction than, than the original thesis behind Bitcoin I see some great irony there
1: yeah, I, I look, I have to agree with that. But I, I still think overall it's a good thing because they're introducing cryptocurrency to a whole bunch of people that have never used it before. And once they get used to the idea, oh my God, I can send currency as easily as email in any amount without crazy fees. Once they get hooked on that, they're never going to go back and they're going to start exploring all the options in that universe. So ultimately, I'm for this.
0: We're talking to Mark Jeffrey and Rob Tercik on Cryptonomics, our special news for 2019 episode, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Cryptonomics. We're talking to Rob Tersik and Mark Jeffrey about the future at least the near future, of cryptocurrencies. One of the things that we've covered on this show that keeps on popping up is this idea of a Fed coin, of a state-backed cryptocurrency. And the Reichsbank in Sweden has made it very clear that they're on a path to this because they see Sweden as becoming a cashless economy over the next few years. And I've actually talked to Swedes about this. And they see this as a positive thing. They don't see the lack of cash in their economy as a bad thing. And they also really want to be able to make sure that the state Revenue department, so the equivalent of their ATO or IRS, actually can track all of the transactions. They see this as a positive social value, and this is the way the Swedes think of it. But we have any number of other kinds of Fed coins coming or have already been introduced. We clearly have the Canadians thinking about it, we may have the Chinese thinking about it, Singapore may be thinking about it. Rob, you mentioned that the Venezuelans have been doing something with their own particular Fed coin.
2: It's funny, when you mentioned this to me, uh, a, a sovereign nation issuing its own cryptocurrency, the first thing that came to mind was the idea of the Venezuelan Bolivar being replaced by crypto. That's an experiment that hasn't gone particularly well. Well, I know they just reached, they said X number of boulevards to whatever, their petro, I think was the is the, they're called the petro because they're backed by oil,
0: and then they just changed the exchange rate because the boulevard continues to collapse in the, This is
2: precisely it. So the motivation here is that the boulevard, the real boulevard itself is collapsing and they're projecting, IMF is projecting a million percent inflation in 2019. Uh, who knows if that'll happen or not, but the point there is like... Well, there's precedence. Zimbabwe, I mean, there's precedence for that. This is a sovereign nation's currency that actually makes Bitcoin look stable by comparison. And and no, in fact, people who have left, uh, who have pulled out of Venezuela, they they will melt wealthy and somewhat just upper middle class people who have left. A lot of people have left Venezuela they're typically leaving everything behind and taking it away in cryptocurrency. They're, putting, they're transferring their money to Bitcoin. So it's kind of a tragedy because anyone who did that in 2018 experienced a tremendous loss of their, of their savings, but it's still worthwhile for them to move to Argentina or to some other country in South America um, and leave everything behind in, in Venezuela. So you have that as kind of like the example of what not to do. Um, actually, let me build on a couple of things you just said because it's true. In Sweden, uh, they're moving towards a cashless economy that doesn't happen in a uniform fashion. So one thing that everyone's got to bear in mind is that there will be a group of people who still need to rely on cash. Um, But as an expert on dematerialization, and the, the principle of dematerialization is inspired by Bucky Fuller's principle, which is do more with less, right? So if you can replace a physical thing with software, you can surely do more with it. It's much more flexible. It's programmable. And yet it costs you less, ultimately it should cost you less. Um, A lot of people, when we take cash for granted, we fail to realize that there are enormous fleets of trucks that have to drive this stuff around and it actually weighs a lot and actually costs a lot to produce coins. And every business that deals with cash has to manage cash. They have to have people, there counting the stuff. It costs more than a penny to make a penny now. Precisely. <laughs> and for any business that's handling cash, it's actually a cost of their, of their business, right? So um, in terms of doing more with less with a digital currency, uh, there's a really strong case to be had. At some point, it's going to cost less for a nation to issue a cryptocurrency than it is to mint coins. Now, what's the motivation? I don't think countries are too terribly concerned about that cost right now. It will become an issue in Sweden. Um, if you peel back a little bit and look at countries like China, where they've expressed that the, you know, the, the People's Bank is interested in issuing uh, a cryptocurrency not to save money, they're interested in control. They realize that a cash economy can't be tracked as easily, and they're very interested to in know what their citizens are doing with money. And, so, uh, and
0: also to bring it into the tax system, because there's a lot of tax evasion in China, just yeah. full stop.
1: Yeah, so I think you know, a lot of these state-backed cryptocurrencies... Uh, First of all, many of them that I've seen to date... Uh, aren't really backed by anything other than you know, oh the state issued it. So in fact it's it's fiat cryptocurrency, which seems like a you know contradiction in terms, but that's what it is. Um, you know the best cryptocurrencies are backed by something. Bitcoin itself is backed by proof of work. So at, at the very raw level, you know, like the electricity it costs to make that Bitcoin, right? So well and
0: the fact that it's also scarce. Like and you, the you fact can't, that you can't just print some more Bitcoin. Right, right.
1: And so but but it is it is somehow backed by something. So I think that the, and also the state actors are now having to compete with private actors. That's never happened before, well, never. Well,
0: okay, then we know that that's actually not true because, in fact, I think it was possible for pretty much anyone to print their own dollars in America until, what, the 1840s or well, 1850s. Well, okay, sure. And <laughs> so, go
1: back a couple centuries, sure.
0: And, and, and the origins of paper money in Song Dynasty, China. It was the merchants who were printing it, and then the emperor's like, actually, you know, we should be controlling the printing of money. So you actually see these moments where groups of people break out and start making their own money, and then that gets reined in very quickly because a state needs to have some control and some trackability over its finances or it's, it starts to lose its own reason to be,
2: right? And just to build on what Mark Jeffrey said a minute ago, every nation in history, if you go, no matter how far back you go, and you can go back to the Song Dynasty in China, every nation in history that has discovered that they can mint money and print out their own money has not been able to withstand the temptation to keep that printing press going. <laughs> this is the fundamental reason why we have cryptocurrency. This is why the whole movement was started. So you can look at this as a rather slow motion conversation. You know, back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, the first cryptocurrency arrives. you know, first in concept and then as a reality. And now you have a whole proliferation of different kinds of coins. Tremendous innovation happening in this space. And now. The sovereign nations are responding and they're going to assert, as we knew they were going to do, they're going to assert that it's their right, their exclusive domain to issue currency, national currency. Okay, so they're going to come do that. And as Mark just pointed out, super important point, I don't want to get lost, I want to reiterate it. It's fiat digital currency. So they're basically saying, we have the right to issue this, trust us. It's a bit like the criticism I just made of Facebook, right? So now we're going to see the marketplace decide which type of currency actually is more relevant and more trustworthy in the digital domain. This is going to be one of the epic battles of the 21st century. Don't expect this to get done in a round or two. It's going to take a while. You'll see different nations try to make their argument and they may have to come up with better arguments than just trust us or "you know this is our, our right and privilege. Or you
0: could see a national government go, okay, here's $20
2: billion in gold bullion, there it is, That, and
0: here's our stable coin, right? And so you may in fact see cryptocurrencies as we think of them informing Fed coins and then Fed coins also informing They're being forced crypto- to
1: compete. Yeah, yeah. They wouldn't have put that yeah. bullion gold behind that coin had the market not forced them to do that. Absolutely. But you may also
0: see cryptocurrencies that are not inherently deflationary, like True. Bitcoin, right? And this is what I'm saying. I think that there's a space for, over the next billion seconds, state currency and Fed coins to inform cryptocurrencies and vice versa. And that what we'll get at the end of that, which is not going to be 2019, this is a project for the next sure. 30 years, the next billion
2: seconds, is something that may be a better currency for everyone possibly? The consumer's going to decide, and that's never been possible ever in the history of minted coins issued by national governments.
0: Well, there's Gresham's law, right? Which is that bad money drives out good. And so, I mean, we always, and that's basically what we're saying here, right? Is that if you give people a chance to have good money, it will, t- it will tend to drive out the bad money because people will opt for it if it's available. And the problem is when that supply gets too controlled. All right, next topic. So, the last guest on this show, our next last guest on the show was Joe Lubin, founder of Consensus, mm-hmm. co-creator of Ethereum. Um, I think I thought he was very thoughtful and reasoned, and seemed very much when he was at CybOS, which was the international banking conference. He, he was invited to give the opening keynote there. It was very much like this was sort of the peak of the arc and, and he comes back to America and very shortly thereafter he announces layoffs at Consensus, which is his design studio. So 13% of the staff, one-eighth of the staff is being laid off. And he said that they needed to focus on more rigor, more structure, more sustainability, more accountability. Rob, you've already sort of said this so-called mythical smart contract, mm-hmm. And these are the leading smart contract folks in the world, right? Not just in terms of talent, but in terms of their focus and, and their public perception. What is this telling us about what it's taking to bring smart contracts into being?
2: What this tells me is that consensus has really smart management. They're doing something really prudent. We're talking about a marketplace where three-quarters of the value has been evaporated in the space of a year. It would be foolhardy for a company that increased its workforce by 300% in one year it would be foolhardy for them to continue at full force when there's been that big of a pullback. So I think this is a really prudent thing to do. And actually, I don't even know how much this matters in terms of the cryptocurrency or all the experimentation that's happening around crypto. This is just a smart thing to do for a startup company. When you're in a market space that's pulled back, then you've got to trim back your staff. So these are guys that are serious about surviving. They plan to be in the game for a few more rounds, and they're taking the necessary steps to do it. And by the way, if you increase your staff 300% in a year, you're going to hire some duds. So to fire 15% of the people, that's probably a smart thing to do under any circumstance.
1: I concur with Rob. I think it's a smart move. Um, and I actually really like Joe Lubin and what folks at Consensus are doing. That all said, I think there's also another pressure that's been brought to bear on ConsenSys. Uh, that is uh, the presence of EOS, which is a competing cryptocurrency platform. For our
0: listeners... Ethereum was the first smart contract yeah. platform, and just in this year we've seen sort of two new ones: Neo and EOS. Yes, uh, Neo is I think out of China, right? Yes, it okay. Is. And EOS is very much out of America.
1: Uh, it's actually Hong in Hong Kong. So, oh, okay, yeah. Although a lot of the people that are working on EOS, really the, the okay. people behind it, are in America for the most
0: part. So we went from having essentially one smart contract. Cryptocurrency to now having multiple smart contract references. Okay,
1: and um, and so over the past year, we've seen EOS go from not existing to uh, approximately forty six million transactions per day, compared to Ethereum's about half a million. We've also seen uh, decentralized applications take off on EOS uh, in, in a much faster uh, pace than we've seen in Ethereum and at a much larger scale. Now, it is true that 90% of these apps are gambling apps. Mm-hmm. You have about 50,000 people uh, rapid-fire rolling dice <laughs> on EOS platforms, mm-hmm. but that's still a success. Ethereum has nothing comparable. So that success has caused people to say, hmm, maybe I should not be on Ethereum, maybe I should be on EOS, particularly uh, gaming people, not, not gambling gaming people, but people like FarmVille, Electronic Arts, those people are now building for EOS first. and We're going to see a bunch of games come out over, the, over 2019 that are based on EOS.
0: So we again start to see the beginnings of a market where we have multiple choices for smart contracts and therefore people are going to make a choice based on their needs for their business.
2: That's exactly right. Let me, let me walk back my snarky comment about smart contracts a minute ago. <laughs> um, So the the conventional wisdom here right now is, um, oh boy, Bitcoin crashed and all the other coins are coins and this whole market's over and there's no more innovation. And I think that's entirely incorrect and it doesn't take much digging to understand that we're in a period of tremendous innovation. So just in the last half hour on this show, we've covered so many different topics. Uh, Mark and I had a lively conversation just a few minutes ago about the difference between utility tokens, security tokens, and securitized assets, or tokenized assets. This is a lively area of innovation, and as Mark pointed out, it varies by jurisdiction. So you're going to see different types of innovation based on the rules and laws and regulations in different countries. But there is an intense amount of innovation happening here, and as Mark Jeffrey also pointed out, ICOs are still happening. A lot of people think that's over, a lot of people think it's dead and done, put a nail in the coffin, bury it. It's not. They're missing it. There were twice as many ICOs conducted, or sorry, twice as much volume in ICOs in the first half of 2018 than there were in all of 2017, and the pace hasn't slowed down. Uh, About $14 billion was raised in the first half of this year in ICOs. Uh, you know, EOS, which we just talked about Raised $4 billion this year in an ICO That's an extraordinary amount of money For a, a coin offering So what I think we're seeing right now Is people are saying "All right, look, you know, This is an evolutionary process uh, Some things were tried Not everything's paid off Not everything's working out It takes a while to sort through Regulators are slow They send mixed signals That causes some people to back off but look, when, when Goldman Sachs buys an exchange for $400 million, they know something's coming in 2019, and I still think that there's a lot of room for innovation in this space.
0: Are we at the threshold of seeing a distributed ad, app that a lot of people will be using, people outside of gambling? Are we on the threshold
1: of something like that? Yeah, we're real close, and you'll see it in 2019. I feel very confident, and it'll be on EOS first. In some sense... In the way that 2017, 2018 were
0: watershed for people just seeing cryptocurrencies, maybe not understanding them, but seeing them, we might actually start to see in 2019, 2020, this tip over point around smart contracts and the way that that's going to work with applications.
2: The interfaces have to get a lot easier to use. So right now, everybody's working on stuff in the core, and they have to because that that needs to get sorted out. But if you're talking about mass adoption by end consumers, we need an app that is as easy to use as a messaging app on your phone or the camera on your phone. We're nowhere near that. Although there are people in iOS who are actually working well, on that.
0: Well, but the thing is, you'd probably expect to see an app where you're not even aware that you're using that's a digital app, right? It's just completely invisible. It just works.
2: Right.
1: That is exactly what we're doing with Guardian Circle. If you you understand that there's a cryptocurrency called Guard in the app, that's great. And you can use the wallet just like you would regular wallets. If you don't, you might think of what you're seeing as airline miles or points, right? You don't necessarily have to understand that it's crypto. More things like that will arise. And I think that is, at least for now, the best way to go. All
0: right. And this is the point where I should be telling all of the listeners that. Mark and I have been talking about, and I've been advising Guardian Circle since it got started back in 2014, and I hold some Guardian tokens, as does Rob Tursick. And so in the interests of full disclosure, we just want you to know that. Um, But it's absolutely fine for Mark to talk about Guardian Circle in this context, but you listeners just need to know that we have some background in that. Okay, next topic. So Digital Asset Holdings was founded by Blythe She came out of uh, JP Morgan in 2015, they really made a splash as being a group of people who understood a lot about blockchain, particularly in the corporate space. And she did a number of big deals, but the biggest deal they got was to move the Australian Stock Exchange, the ASX, its settlement system from something called CHESS, which has been around since the 1980s, into a fully blockchain-based settlement system. The project was announced in just in the immediate wake of an enormous outage at the ASX in which the CEO actually stepped down. The new CEO steps up and says, oh, and we're going to be doing this. So it was clearly part of a PR push, all right, to sort of reframe the ASX as being future forward and, and resilient. And the project has been proceeding. They did a white paper that went out. They're doing the implementation. The implementation is supposed to be released But just at the end of December, very suddenly, an unannounced Blythe Masters steps down, citing personal reasons. And when you have someone who's so so completely associated with that brand of that firm and has such a high-profile client relationship, what should we be reading out of this? Should we be reading anything more than she's stepping down or should we be going, wait a minute, maybe there's something else going on here?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think. I mean, look, people do have personal emergencies in their lives, so even in crypto. Uh, so I, I, I don't know, but I think you know. I, I've I've followed Blythe and what she's been doing from afar for a while, but I don't I don't really know it deeply. But my sense has always been that she comes from inside the banking universe, and you know she's sort of being, she likes script though, but she's sort of being forced into it. Um, And it's sort of like watching the taxi, somebody from the taxi industry try to invent Uber. You know what I mean? It sort of feels like that to me.
0: So what she's doing is she's using the technology at hand to solve a problem for a big client as she would if she were just in the normal banking industry, right? I mean, that's what it is. She's using blockchain because it's the tool.
2: One of her credentials uh, for getting this position is that she designed the credit default swap. And so (laughs) she is known as an architect of very complex and very creative financial instruments. And the credit default swap, Warren
0: Buffett called, the financial weapon of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. That's
2: the exact language that he used. It's
0: interesting. I I knew about Blaine and I had no idea she was the architect of the credit default swap until this. I knew that too. Okay, so... So what you're saying is maybe this is a mixed bag. There could, and absolutely, there's personal reasons. We're not going to pry. Everyone has tragedies or things happen in their life. You're absolutely right about this. What we probably don't want to see is we don't want to see a very high-profile blockchain project hit the rocks as a result of that. And because this is going to be the first exchange that's going to start to use a blockchain for settlements, first major exchange to start to use blockchain for settlements.
2: Get used to it it's all experimentation. There are hundreds of blockchain experiments and trials and tests being conducted around the world. Most of them fail. That sounds bad, the way I put it just now. It sounds bad, but it's not. It's, again, another indication that there's lively innovation happening and anyone who's done anything creative in their life, anyone who's been an entrepreneur, knows that most startups fail. Most of these initiatives are gonna be misguided and we will learn from them. That's not a reason to back away from this. That's a reason to continue, redouble your efforts, try harder and get smarter.
1: Uh, I really hate to find myself agreeing with Rob, but I do. <laughs> and uh, you know, a, a lot of pe- a lot of your listeners may not know this, but never mind cryptocurrency, 90% of all startups fail. And and when that happens, that's healthy. That's the way it's supposed to happen. That's not a problem. It's
0: painful but healthy. Yeah. All right, final topic, closing topic. The 9th of January We saw the 10th anniversary of what's called the Genesis event on Bitcoin. So Bitcoin's white paper was released on the 31st of October 2008. We had an episode which we recorded on that date, which celebrated that event. But of course, there's this other event, which is when the first Bitcoins were actually generated and the first blocks in the first Bitcoin blockchain were generated. So we call this the Genesis event. We're now at exactly the 10-year point from that Mark, what have we learned in ten years oh
1: my goodness well we've we've learned that the world wants cryptocurrency, or at least a good part of it does, and that there's something very, very interesting here um, you know it's it's still very, very early days we 're not too far down this road at all. It's kind of like we've seen. You know, if this were the internet, Netscape has gone public. That's kind of all that's happened. So the big stuff, the stuff that everyone will remember in the end, the Google, the Facebook, the Amazon, whatever those things are, the cryptocurrency analogs of them, we they haven't happened yet. And but they are coming. And when they come, it appears like it'll be you know ten x a hundred x what the internet itself was. So ultimately, I'm very bullish. I just don't know how long it's going to take. That's that's the one thing.
2: Rob, what have we learned? One thing we've learned, even today in this conversation, is that it's a lot of fun to speculate about bad news. And it's very sensational, and it attracts a lot of people's attention. And in doing, in paying attention to that, you can lose sight of the much bigger and maybe less sexy story of progress. Progress is incremental and there's lots of setbacks, you know, it's sort of two steps forward and a step and a half back maybe. And the pioneers are the ones with the arrows in their backs. Yeah, exactly. And so I mean this has been the case with every technology I've worked on in 30 years. So none of this comes as a surprise. Uh, all of the people around this table today have been in the entrepreneurial scene and we've all had our ups and downs and we've seen many companies start and many companies fail. But those who succeed in carving out a new space tend to grow in a a networked economy can grow very large very quickly. So where are we in 10 years? I'm going to borrow from Fred Wilson. Uh, Fred Wilson, who blogs at AVC and he's at Union Square Ventures. Union Square Ventures, and right. one of the very early people who understood tokenomics, tokenomics in terms of investment. blockchain, and they're building their entire fund on blockchain right now. And he said the way to think about this is... Um, Every 10 years, a new computing paradigm is introduced. A new kind of computing is introduced. And so he looks at the blockchain and then cryptocurrency on top of the blockchain as a new form of computing. We can debate that. Some people say that Ethereum is uh, the largest computer in the world because it's a bunch of com- uh, nodes networked together, even though there are you know, many different computers connected together. Right. Uh, you know, we can, we can debate whether or not this analogy holds or not. But the point Fred made is every time a new computing system is introduced, it's actually quite lousy at solving the problems that the previous computing system could do. You know, So if you think of like the switch from mainframes to microcomputers or from microcomputers to personal computers or personal computers to mobile phones, right? those are four big shifts that we've all lived through. Um, the, what the old system was good at is not what the new system was designed for and it wasn't necessarily good at solving those existing problems. The old system's quite capable of doing that. So what's this new computing system good for? We haven't quite figured it out yet, but here's what it might be. Maybe for the first time in history, this distributed computing network can calculate something as complex as an entire economy. Maybe an industrial economy, or an industrial vertical, or maybe an entire national currency economy. We don't know yet, but that's a pretty powerful thing, because until now, all of economics has relied on models, and models are abstractions, and models are theories, So perhaps for the first time in history, we're standing at the brink of being able to calculate an entire economy. That makes me enormously excited. Now, it's not such an easy thing to point to. It's gigantic, vast, profound, and complex. Hard thing to boil down to a bumper sticker. It's a lot easier to point to, oh, such and such a company laid off a couple hundred people, or somebody famous just quit their job, their high-profile job working at a bank or whatever. I say to everybody listening to this thing, don't get too bogged down into the day-by-day, blow-by-blow news that you hear, because it's almost entirely negative, because that's what gets people's attention. And we're living in an attention-driven scene right now. What you should look at is the longer arc. And the longer arc towards a computable economy is a fascinating and rich topic. Fortunes are going to be made. We still don't know where those fortunes are going to be made. It's early days. But when you study this stuff and when you read about it, bear that idea in mind. What is being calculated here? What is being computed? And what can we thereby build on top of that? And I just want to add one thing from my own point of view
0: about what we've learned in the last 10 years. What we've learned in the last 10 years, specifically from Bitcoin, is how hard it is to achieve consensus when there's a lot of money on the table. The internet got to consensus very quickly because there, at the time the internet was being developed and refined, there was no money, there were no large organizations with billions of dollars on the table. That pretty much happened very early on, and the more Bitcoin became worth, the less the speed of innovation because people became resistant to any change that might affect the value they were holding. And so we've actually learned something here about maybe when we're designing these systems in the future, to design some mechanisms to allow them to self-evolve in a different kind of consensus. Big thanks to Mark Jeffrey and to Rob Tursick for coming on the show. If you want to learn more about Mark Jeffrey or Guardian Circle, or if you want to read Rob's fantastic book, Vaporized, or take a look at Satoshi Nakamoto's original white paper, which led to the Genesis event, or any of the links to the news that we talked about on the show, please cruise over to our website at cryptonomics.show. You'll find everything there you need to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's cryptonomics.show. The Next Billion Seconds Cryptonomics was written and presented by Mark Pesce, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Matt Nikolich. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesce thanking you for listening.